0: Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Humanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today from Berea in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa is neurophysiologist Candice Botcher who has a special interest in epilepsy and heads up the Entebene Epilepsy Laboratory, which is a comprehensive epilepsy monitoring unit. According to the World Health Organization, approximately 50 million people worldwide have epilepsy, making it one of the most common neurological diseases globally. Nearly 80% of people with epilepsy live in low- and middle-income countries, And it's estimated that up to 70% of people living with epilepsy could potentially live seizure-free if properly diagnosed and treated. So with that as an introduction, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Amelia. I'm really looking forward to the talk. Neurophysiologists diagnose and treat a number of different conditions related to the nervous system. These include diseases such as Parkinson's, motor neuron disease, multiple sclerosis, as well as epilepsy. Epilepsy, according to literature, is a disorder characterized by abnormal brain activity causing seizures or periods of unusual behavior, sensations, and sometimes loss of awareness. From a South African perspective, almost half a million South Africans suffer from epilepsy. Please, can you tell us about some of the types of epilepsy as well as the causes?
1: So um, internationally, we're looking at probably one in 100. Um, South African statistics are a little bit higher. At the moment, they're probably sitting between 1.2 and sometimes depending on where you look at the statistics, as high as 1.5%. And I think it's mostly because we have a high incidence of uh, violent crime. One of the causes of epilepsy is traumatic brain injury. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but in Cape Town, we have the highest incidence of penetrating head injuries in the world. Certainly ones that have been documented. So trauma, which also includes motor vehicle accidents, by the way. So we have a large percentage of that. Also illnesses such as uh, encephalitis and meningitis. The viral versions of that uh, are very, very um, aggressive. And what they often cause will be a particular type of epilepsy that likes to attack the temporal lobe. And so we find that in young kids. And so they have these high fevers and uh, and often will develop epilepsies in the early stages of life. Um, and even if they don't actually display it, then they will be predisposed and they may present later on in life. Um, and then there is a, a huge amount of genetic epilepsies and hereditary epilepsies. Because those are two different types of epilepsies. There are epilepsies that also come from malformations of the brain. So we might find some kind of deformity that the child is born with at birth. And then also if you have either scarring from a stroke, cerebrovascular incident, or a tumour, and a person may then suffer from seizures afterwards as a post-traumatic type of epilepsy, post-surgery. But most epilepsies start in the first decade of life. And in terms of
0: the seizures, do people know that they're about to experience something or is it um, quite a sudden onset?
1: So your average seizure, and when I say average, it's a very broad term, is divided up into three parts. One will be your, what you've just called a warning, which we call an aura. So it's a sense that something is going to happen. Some people really battle to articulate that, but they have a sense of knowing Depending on the type of seizure or type of epilepsy, it may even be a very stereotypical feeling like deja vu or a strange smell or taste. Then you have the actual seizure itself. We call that the ictal phase. People may have absolutely no alteration of consciousness whatsoever and remain perfectly conscious. Some people may have an alteration of consciousness but still remain perfectly conscious and some people might completely lose consciousness in varying degrees. Seizures might last one second. They might last two minutes. And then after that, you have what we call a post phase, which is a recovery phase. And that can last anything from a few seconds to depending on how long the seizure is, can last as long as half an hour, 14 minutes. Some patients say that it can, they can feel the after effects up to three days. My job is to try and observe the seizure. So we bring them in. And we wait and we collect data on the actual seizure. So they know these seizures better than anybody.
0: Tell us more about what you do. So you mentioned observing, bringing patients in. When we were chatting offline, you spoke about reading EEGs. Walk us through some of that processing.
1: So essentially when a person is referred to the epilepsy unit, the referring doctor has a question regarding the either the diagnosis or the treatment of the person. So what I like to do is we, we've developed a protocol over many years, refined, 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 depending on the profile of the patient. And I will do a telephonic interview beforehand, whether it be with a parent, a caregiver, or the patient. And then we decide along with the team how many days the person will be admitted for. And then when they come in, we basically record a, an average of five to seven days on average. We record their brain activity over that period of time. And the whole idea really is to accumulate data like pieces of a puzzle. The main objective is to capture a seizure from onset to end, both electrically and clinically. And what is their brain doing while it's happening? How do they behave? And how do they behave afterwards and what is the effect Uh, that's really what we do and then we and then we can see if they're on the right medication if the diagnosis is correct or we can give them a diagnosis we can bring in another you know other teams other parts of the team depending on what the results are
0: are there any nervous disorders that women are potentially more at risk from or
1: predisposed to and why would that be so in epilepsy, it's pretty much a one-to-one. But in neurology, I would say certainly Alzheimer's. It's quite fascinating the older a woman gets and the 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 fluctuation of her estrogen in her um in her blood, it almost makes her, from what I've read makes her more prone to vascular um, illness. And so that's why we find, although the majority of younger strokes are males, the majority of older strokes by far are females. And um, the research lately has been um, indicating that that's hormone related. Bringing things back
0: to you, why did you decide to focus on epilepsy?
1: So I... I really wish that I could say there was something specific about epilepsy per se that drew me. My little sister did have epilepsy when she was, you know, she was diagnosed with epilepsy when she was five and she was put onto, um, onto epilepsy medication really early on. Um, and I remember that affecting her quite a bit in her studies. But really what drew me was this um, this, this beautiful link between technology and um I guess, biology and anatomy. I love technology. I've always been a, um, a techno geek, I guess, since I was a little girl. I had the privilege of working with technology in the, in the early 80s. when it took 20 minutes to boot up a computer. And, um, and so it was a beautiful marriage between technology and, um, and the brain. But also I realized early on that when you're working with the brain, you're working with the uh, personality, a person, and I love that connecting with other. It's a, it's a huge part of my of my job. And so, to be very honest, neurophysiology and epilepsy in particular found me. Someone approached me in my survey and said to me, I want to start an epilepsy monitoring unit in South Africa. You seem like someone who might enjoy this work. But there's nowhere in South Africa for you to go to. And I don't know if you'd like it, but if you'd like, to try and go and have a look and see if it's something that you're interested in, then I can organize that for you. You have to pay yourself. <laughs> but if you like it and you want, you can come back and be part of my team if you are keen. That is literally what happened, and I have never looked back.
0: You've been quite pioneering in this field from a South African context. There's not a lot of people who specialize in epilepsy and neurophysiology
1: no, so um so so we were the first long term epilepsy monitoring units in South Africa. Our initial objective was to be able to offer patients with really, really intractable difficulty to control epilepsy um the option of epilepsy surgery. That was our initial objective. It's turned out that we can do so much more, but that was our initial objective. And since then, there's a unit that's come up in in Cape Town and also one or two in Joburg. But you have to meet certain criteria to actually be credited as a unit. But yes, when I first started, there was nobody else. And the other units are headed up by neurologists. They will have a neurophysiologist with my qualification assisting them as backup or as part of their team. I head up the team, I'm the central part of the team, and then I bring in the the, um, the specialists. But we generally will have a, a fixed team. We've been working together for almost 20 years, the neurologist and the neurosurgeon and myself, and then we bring in the next layer of expertise as we require.
0: You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and today we're talking to neurophysiologist Candace Botcher. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. One question that I wanted to ask you, and this is a question that I ask a lot of women in their their different fields, is if you consider the South African environment to be supportive enough towards promoting opportunities for women who want to work in healthcare across different fields, or or let's say specializations, whether it is in the neurophysiology space and epilepsy, or in uh, cardio, or Whatever field it may be, I'm just curious to understand, you know, your view, if you think that our market is, is doing enough to encourage women.
1: So I think internationally, actually, we have a huge problem with uh, skills availability. I mean, and that doesn't, it doesn't matter where you're talking about. Uh, I mean, we see it in the UK in a huge, huge way at the moment. I think they're more undersourced uh, than we are. Um, And on a weekly basis, we see people coming from there with ties to here, coming here for procedures and surgery. But I think to answer your question, um, a few things come to mind post availability, because on a fundamental level, what we need to do here is the gatekeepers are uh, it's the academic sector and you can study. But then you've got to get your comms have Got to get experience on a community service level. And if the community service level does not have posts, they gatekeep you. So what I did was I um, I tried to negotiate, and it actually worked. But it was one of the most uncomfortable experiences I've probably ever had. But I was I was able to negotiate uh, an intern to help an intern where she did one year, out of her two years of concept, she did one year in province and she did one year with me. So it was a collaborative attempt to make this thing work. So I'm not quite sure if it's uh, if it's South Africa and the South African context, if it's a problem between the private and the public sector. My God, I feel it's the latter. Internationally, the people who are at the forefront of new... Innovation and technology and the wonders that medical can bring medical field can bring, especially within the technology field, it's normally academics. No matter what it, place I go to or what space I attend internationally, generally only one in the private sector it makes it very difficult. Mm-hmm. So I think they that, that private private government collaboration could do with a lot of help, especially with women.
0: A healthcare Medicine, it's continuously evolving. And it, you, when you talk about this marriage between technology and biology, it's certainly something which is very, very innovative and it's continuing to find new ways of being able to combat disease and ultimately get better patient outcomes. What are some of your views towards lifelong education to progress in a field and really be at that cutting edge of your discipline?
1: I actually think it's a—it's not even a discussable issue. You, it is a have to. And I don't often find myself at a loss for words, but quite literally, I can't find the words to emphasize enough how important it is. I appreciate the fact that I'm passionate about my work and so it drives me. It fuels me to keep learning and keep learning. And especially when you're in the private sector, it is a massive sacrifice because you have to and take time away or you have to fit in time after work and it costs a lot of money but i'm telling you your blink one year will be gone and you will have missed something it's like suddenly knowing not knowing bluetooth arrived or i mean obviously it was a while ago but i'm just saying i'm using that as an example you know um and so it's a really really difficult thing because the the health professions council they they do request that we that we do continued professional development. But one can bypass that by, I don't know, as a neurophysiologist, I could read something on plastics, get a couple of points and meet the criteria. So it's vitally, vitally important to be able to stay engaged and to also grow it in the country. We don't have nearly enough neurophysiologists in this country, not nearly enough. So to be able to push the boundaries and learn and teach, we have to be learning all the time, but South Africa. I can be on. I can tell you that when I go, it doesn't matter if I go to Belgium or to the US. We talk the same language. They have ten toys, we have four, but our outcomes are the same, and our our language is the same. Our reports are the same, and our patients are the same. It's wonderful. I love it. It's very very good.
0: That must be very comforting in a way that you're at the top of your game, and that it doesn't matter where anyone else is in in the world. That you're at that frontier pushing those boundaries and ensuring that the people that come through behind you are also there at that learning front.
1: Well, I tell you, it's such a humbling thing because you have to constantly try and figure out what you don't know. It takes a certain skill. And, and if you're tired and you're overworked and you're dealing with multiple personalities, because I just, you know, I, I wish I could just do medicine and I didn't have to do reports or admin. You know, like pay tax <laughs> and bills and things. But that's what happens. But, you know, if you get the right team around you and you're able to um, to constantly be in a space where it's a collaborative thing, we work as a team. We've got multiple Venn diagrams going all the time and we just feed off each other. And we, ha- we hold accountable all the time. So we love it and we really respect each other that way. So we're constantly feeding each other. When you're talking about
0: this dynamic, one of the challenging components that often comes up when we have conversations regarding gender equality is how people are able to cope and manage their work, manage their home life, and build in this balance where you're still able to drive forward with your career development. What is your formula? How do you get it right?
1: So in this particular type of practice, I have to be on call 24 hours a day. As long as I've got a patient in there, I'm on call. But I'm on, a, I'm on a technical type of call. And obviously, I've got that thing finely tuned. I don't often get calls, but I'm on call all the time. But what I do is I never bring my work home, ever. I don't read a journal article. The only time I do work at home, is if there's an emergency little thing that I need to just give an opinion on or if I'm prepping for a presentation or a talk and and I'm a bit behind on time. But certainly 99% of the time, I leave work and I leave work. I'm also ferociously um, protective of my mental space. I love my work. I, I love the people I work with and I'm incredibly compassionate. I probably overstep even every now and then because you know what? I really don't care. I'm going, to, I'm going to be hugging a crying mom. I'm going to be hugging a crying mom. I really don't care. But it can be an incredibly sad place to um, to work, as rewarding as it can be. And so I'm, um, I'm one of those people. I don't watch the news. I don't read newspapers. I, I guard my heart. I guard my mind. And I control as much as I possibly can as to what it is that goes in here. So I'm a ferocious reader. I'm learning and reading and listening to audiobooks all the time, but I am very, very, very careful of my um, my mental space and my heart, because I learned in the beginning my heart father like was broken perpetually. I always wanted to, I was guided by that thing, and, and you eventually, especially with the babies, it's hard, eh? Especially if they die. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. But when I'm at home, and I'm at home, and I and I have a peaceful space. I do everything I can to bring peace and calm into my space. And after years of practice, it's, uh, it's become part of who I am. And you can feel it when you walk into my home.
0: It's a very interesting answer. Um, recently, we had Dr. Suzanne Kutzer, who is a geriatrician. And one of the things she said, she said, if you're not able to fill and replenish your own cup, how on earth are you going to have anything left to give? And I think with the way that you've described your practical approach there, that that is a tremendous lesson. It is leaving one zone, completely timing out from your work environment, going into your home environment, because work will always be there. But it's about protecting your mental well-being.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, most of my job, although I know I've got a technical job and I read brainwave activity, if I can't connect on an emotional level, if I'm I don't know if I'm using the right word, but if I can't connect with that mom or that person who feels broken, really all I am is a button pusher. But that is not what my job's about. I know that I that I probably do get more from the job than I should in terms of an emotional space, but I, that that's part of what feeds me, you know, it feeds my soul in a way. So if I don't have that, then I might as well just keep my door locked and, and push, a, push a
0: button on the screen. So I need that, yeah. You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity. And today we're talking to neurophysiologist Candace Botcher. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at WomanityTalk. Throughout our lives, we encounter various challenges, various obstacles, but often women encounter possibly a little bit more than they should do. In your view, what have been some of the challenges that you've experienced as you've built your career and what did you do to overcome them?
1: Um, I think one of the biggest things um, is just not reacting or overreacting to the way people first perceive me. By that, what I mean is you know, sometimes people's expectation of you is based on, um, on, on what they see from a distance. How do I put this? Um, I remember the very first time I, I was trying to, I was actually trying to apply for another course. And I'd already studied before. And in fact, this is actually the second degree that I had been for. And I was trying to look for something else because the other one was a lot la- more lab-based and I went and spoke to the head of department. And he said to me, my girl, I tell you what, can I please give you some good advice? Um, why don't you do yourself a favor and go and get yourself a good secretarial course and just avoid all of the hardships that come with a complicated job like this. And, and that's the person in leadership. Yep. You know, uh, older gentlemen, gentlemen, maybe it was the like you know previous regime I don't know what it was you know I worked very hard for my for my marks so. I anyway I remember stare, walking out of an office and I had like this look on my face and there was a gentleman in the room next door and he must have heard this I can only imagine and I was kind of trying look I had just come from a job and maybe I had you know how does you think oh, my dress, I had like a little black dress on and I had a weekend job at a hairdressing salon, you know, and I, because uh, my mom was a hairdresser and I, I had to dress a particular way, you know, my hair was done, I had makeup on and uh, anyway, he came and he said to me, are you okay? I said, oh, I'm just a bit confused. I just had the weirdest experience. He said, I'll tell you what, why didn't you, have you considered this and this? And he then goes and tells me about this degree. I'd never heard of it ever. I said, oh, I've never heard of that. He goes, Well, I'll tell you what, why don't you think about it? I'll give you some pamphlets. Where I can take you around to various hospitals when it's time to take the students step around for a bit of orientation so they can see what the course is about. Then you can decide. And that was my moment. That man's one of my closest friends today. So, what would your message
0: be to other women who are confronted with a similar situation? They're- about to embark on a different choice of degree, they already have the evidence behind them that they are competent and
1: someone undermines them. So now in retrospect, I don't, so I didn't ever remember that happening to me again because I know what I know. And the thing is that I, I asked, so the gentleman who, um, who, the other gentleman who made me, his name is Shaquille Ori. And he became instrumental, instrumental in so many divergences in my career and in my personal development that I, I couldn't, I could write a whole book on that. But he, um, he, were, he ended up being my anatomy and physiology lecturer. And what he did was he made me, so I went into the series of interviews and he said, do you know what it was that made us choose you in that interview? Because there were other candidates that were just as good. Very, very small selection of people who actually got um, accepted. He said, when we asked you, what are the things that you think you can do that make you good at this job? What do you do on weekends? And I was working at an electronic shop. I can change plugs. I can put aerials on roofs. So as a spare job, when I wasn't working at the hairdressing salon, I helped my father in law in his electronic shop. I sold ICs, I sold components, I helped them fix TVs. So I could do that stuff with my eyes closed. My dad was an electrician. I knew gadgetry. I could fix computers by the time I was, I don't know, 16. I, would, I was doing programming at the age of 12. But nobody asked me because why? Do you think they saw the little black dress maybe in the black and the blonde hair? I'm not sure. The truth is that. I reckon now, if I could tell anybody, just stop for a moment and breathe and read the scene, read the room. I don't think that man would have heard me even if I tried to speak to him. Now, I love finding that little crack in the door where I go, where I allow myself the opportunity to speak their language so that they see past the little black dress and the blonde hair. And they see my brain because that's me because now I'm 49 years old. I'm not wearing a little black dress. I'm way, po- I mean, I've still got the long blonde hair, but you know what I'm trying to say to me, all that matters now, or mostly matters is my brain. That's what I need them to see. And so I try to open up an opportunity to engage with them so that they see that I know what I'm talking about, because I know what I know. And then own the confidence. Don't be aggressive. That's the most important thing. Just know what you know and be okay with that. And if they can't see it, you walk away because there will be somebody else who will see you in the foyer next door. Playing the game
0: by their rules, talking their language are ways of of penetrating. Something I wanted to touch on with you is your views of, of mentorship because clearly the gentleman who had spotted you in the foyer was instrumental in your life. Tell us a little bit more on on mentoring and mentorship and what that means to you and um, how how you think that helps.
1: I never even understood, I mean, I never understood really what that was and I don't think I realised I was even being mentored until I became, um, I suppose, until I became more aware uh, of becoming a mentor myself by being almost asked in a way. But what he did was, years and years and years later, I asked him, I said to him, tell me how that happened. You know, I wasn't necessarily a special student. And it wasn't just me. He did that with lots of students. But he said, you know, you were curious. There was there's a curiosity about you always. And you were, you were consistent. You were And you were always uh, wanting to learn whatever it was that he saw. So he would do random things like say, oh, we've there's a a little meeting here about the seven summits of change. And I'm like, whatever, sounds interesting. I go there and I learn about thinking about thinking. And I'm, I'm 22 years old and I'm learning about the concept of figuring out how it is that I think and therefore figuring out what it is that I want. So I learn about all the primary levels. So really to answer your question, I think, what I, what I learned from him, I almost began to put into action with all the teaching that I did, with the hopes that as you start to put it out there and people learn, it, got, it starts getting reflected back at you. Because I, I never knew how desperate people needed mentoring. We see it in school, but as a, as a structured thing. But when you need it and people are saying, please, anything – then I recognize that it just takes a bit of spilling over. That passion that you've got, you spill it over. It doesn't need a structure. It's lovely if it's got a structure. But I think that it's so important. And I I thank God every day that he was in my life and that he's still in my life.
0: Well, staying with this trend of, of journeying and components which have contributed towards your life, one question I ask everyone is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success, whether it is faith, uh, a particular person, a discipline, a perseverance. Please tell us about some of the factors that you think have contributed to your success.
1: Um, I think that um, um, I have a particular type of resilience that came as part of uh, a consequence um, due to my upbringing and my family life. I'm quite certain I was doing my mom's taxes when I was about nine. Um, No shame, my parents, they adored me, but I came from a very working class family. And um, I think what happened was I always had this overdeveloped sense of responsibility. And um, I think that added into that, I was curious, always. So I had this, I think just knowing, there's a strange sense of knowing that happens when, when you don't have, um, how can I answer this without getting too philosophical? Because the truth is, when you have this deep sense of knowing that you are where you belong, there is no doubt. I've never been for an interview even my staff. I haven't interviewed one staff. I've never even put out an ad. I'm surrounded by some of the most amazing people. My, my day nurse has been working with me for 23 years and she's like my right brain, you know, and right on. And I think that what happens is when you do things for the right reason and you know your why, then what happens is, It takes you. (laughs) And I think that my upbringing just made me, I want to say single-minded, but we didn't have money. We didn't really have space to make big mistakes. It wasn't a luxury that we had. And I was the only one in my family who got a degree. That includes cousins, uncles, aunts, the whole lot. And so it was primed that way, you know. Um, But I just had a lot of love. And I wish I could say that it was any one thing. But certainly... At no one point did I ever doubt that I'm doing this work. Uh, this practice, this is not my practice. I really believe this is God's practice. So it's such a lovely space to be because um, then I actually can't make a mis- It's not that I can't make a mistake, but the reason I'm doing it is I'm doing it for him. And he will take care of the practice and he will take care of me. All I have to do is my best. I have to look after these people who are my staff, you know, these people who are my patients, and we have to look after each other, and then he looks after all of us. And I saw it in COVID over and over. They shut my practice for six and a half months. There's zero income for six and a half months. And so I think if you've got a big-picture mentality and a, and a bit of resilience where you get knocked over and over to just like get back up again, I'll be okay, we'll make this work, we we'll carry on.
0: Everybody is unique. Everybody brings a different recipe. Um, some of the points that are in common, I think, though, is the purpose component. People who know their why are invariably more focused and, and anchored. And it also comes into play with the, the resilience aspect. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing some of the, the vectors and the drivers that have helped you in your journey. Um, now we are unfortunately running out of time. So as we wrap up, please can you share a few words of motivation or
1: inspiration with women and girls who are listening to us? So uh, you did give me this one question and I actually sat with it for a little while because one of the things I love to do is uh, is to think of this. And I guess a few things came to mind one of the big revelations for me and because i was i was so insular and, my, and and by myself i really battled to make myself um vulnerable and share the load but when you're in the medical field you never ever ever insular you cannot be alone so share the load and tell people what's going on so you know if your heart is broken if something if someone in your world dies if you if you if you lose somebody in whatever form that takes you know, I called each person in one at a time and I said, Listen, I am going to be dropping balls. I don't normally drop balls. My heart is broken. I don't know how long it's going to take to get better, but I need you to help me. And that was the hugest thing because I never, ever needed to ask for help before. Probably should, but I didn't. So ask for help. Be open and transparent and lean on the team around you that you've helped create, you know, and they will love you even more for it. I think that was a big one for me. Um, the other thing was that I realized that your best, it really, really does vary from day to day. And I think that accepting that my best is good enough was so important because it's so unforgiving in the medical field. You cannot make mistakes, but on a fundamental level, we will make mistakes so to justify it in a way I just realized that I can only do my best and that's what I tell the kids and the youngsters who come through the unit or if I'm teaching teaching them you have to accept the fact that what today's best and tomorrow's best are going to be different you don't know what you're going to wake up feeling like tomorrow or what's going to happen so you know just let your best be enough Um, and then the other thing I suppose if I could just um kindness, yeah, kindness goes a long way. No matter what you do, no matter who you're speaking to, just be kind. You know, to be to be kind and to listen to people, especially people who have given you the privilege of being vulnerable in your world. They are broken and they are scared and they are sad. And just listen to what they have to say. Those spaces in between, they will tell you way more than the words that come out of the person's mouth. But you have to just stop. You have to stop and you need to listen and just show them kindness. And I'm telling you, I have seen it over and over and over. Sometimes nothing changes in terms of medical management when a person leaves our unit, But I know that they're real because we've shown them kindness. I know it. And if you can do that, I think you've done the job thank you very much for for
0: sharing um it's been wonderful to have you on the show to hear your perspectives of the discipline your personal experiences how you cope with life how you view life and bring that mix in together with your profile so thanks very much for joining us today thank
1: you so much for having me i really appreciate it's been lovely chatting to you you have been
0: listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we have been talking to neurophysiologist Candace Botcher.